The Prevention and Early Intervention Network is pleased to bring to you our podcast series, Perspectives on Prevention. My name is Marion Quinn, and in this podcast, I'll be meeting people who have experiences to share, insights to explore, and expertise to draw on from the field of child and family services. We hope these conversations inspire, challenge, and engage anyone interested in improving outcomes for children, families, and communities. In this episode of Perspectives on Prevention, I'm delighted to talk with Silda Langford, whose career in social work informed her many subsequent roles in the civil service. We discussed Silda's role in establishing the precursor to the Department of Children. What I did was I assessed how you would get money for childcare and children. And I said, if we can get childcare started and begin to build it up, everything happens incrementally. The only thing that happened with the Big Bang was free secondary education in Ireland, where Donna O'Malley announced it, and that was it. Everything else is incremental. Affecting change at national level, and particularly on enabling interdepartmental collaboration. Interdepartmental work is really hard work. No department has enough funding for everything they have to do. They also have their priorities, so what their minister or what's in the programme for government has to be done. So we had a lot of difficult meetings. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Perspectives on Prevention, Silda Langford, who on her retirement from the civil service was the Director General of the Office of the Minister for Children, which subsequently became our very first Department of of Children. And Silda, I'm going to embarrass you by quoting from this book, Achieving Impact in Public Service, Essays in Honour of Silda Langford, which opens by saying that um, the book is inspired by the long and distinguished career of Silda Langford, considered by many to be one of the most outstanding public servants of her generation. Because this is a podcast, people won't be able to see you blushing, so that's all right. So what what does that feel like to have that written about you? When I got the phone call three weeks before the book was published, um, inviting me to the launch, and I didn't know what it was. And when it was explained to me what it was, um, they used a German term called I can't remember what it is now, but it's common in um, academic circles, whereby academics um, sometimes do things for other academics. So my shock was about the fact that I thought it was about it was going to go into uh, how I worked and how I did it. And I was going to be found out for the corners I had cut and the risks I had taken. And I was having none of it. And I said, this is just dreadful. So when I understood them, what it was, it was basically using the jobs I had worked in as an excuse to write some policy stuff that would be useful to people that are working today and to possibly um, give students an insight into how things work and how things don't work. So uh, when I understood it in that context, um, it was okay with me. The other thing that bothered me was that... um, you know, my career wasn't any more remarkable than um, anybody else. And, uh, but I suppose uh, they had to say that in order to get an excuse to publish it. So, <laughs> Well, but I think lots of people would argue that that's not the case, Silda. Um, but I'm, I'll hold out for the expose. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
And, and so, Silda, that kind of humility, um, I think, does definitely characterise a lot of the engagement that any of us who have worked with you would have experienced and evidenced in the fact that actually it took quite a bit of persuading for you to do this podcast with me. So do you want to just say a little bit about what that reluctance was about? Um, well, my reluctance to do the podcast was because I retired over 12 years and therefore I worked at a different time and a different environment. And the world has changed enormously in the 12 years since I've retired. And in many ways, I think it's a much more difficult world and complex world. And therefore, my concern was about um, giving my views uh, in a way that um, might not be useful to people that are struggling and working on the ground today and trying to uh, advance implementation and services. So as long as I can caveat that, that I don't know exactly what's going on out there. I don't know the challenges. And... Um, so therefore, what I have to say needs to be put in that context, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, uh, I was afraid cool. it might do damage rather than be useful, if that's sure. Makes sure. Sense. Yeah. Well, uh, let's hope we um, do no harm. Do no harm. That's yeah. Right. Yes. At the very least. At the very least. Yeah. And um, and Silda, from your observations, um, and no doubt, you know, you're in contact with colleagues, and and you know, you you're abreast of sort of changes what what are those changes that you see um that you think make the world and work more complex and more difficult well in terms of the um public and civil service um it has got more managerial and i mean i use the word managerial sort of in um sociological sense that you know that everything everything is about accountability and about governance uh, which has to be there. But if you don't balance that with uh, a questioning and, and, and a measurement, making sure that what's actually been done is, is the right thing and that it's been effective and that you make sure that you consult with people. Uh, now, when I was at work, uh, people would remember as well, we had many a Barney and many a battle because we didn't always agree because we're coming from different perspectives. But I think in my time, I had more freedom and more scope to in, in terms of, you know, access to, to ministers and access to, to secretary generals. And that was one of the advantages of the Office of Ministry for Children, because we had um, a cross, cross agency um, structure within the Department of Health, with me having access to the management board in the Department of Justice and the Department of Education and the Department of Health. Uh, I didn't belong to any one department, even though I did belong. I was accountable to the Secretary General of Health. So I had quite a lot of scope in and fluidity in moving around departments and talking to um, talking to people. And um, in a sense, I, I was nobody sort of knew what what they actually wanted. They just wanted more joined up work about children. And so I had a blank canvas. And I remember the first day at work, I said, what in the name of God am I supposed to be doing and what can I do? So I found myself, I remember asking for a meeting with the city and county managers, uh, because at the time they were closing down playgrounds uh, using insurance as an excuse. There weren't many playgrounds and uh, the few that were there, they were closing them and I asked to meet them. And it took quite a lot of time to get a meeting, but I, I drew on this mandate I had for cross-agency work and I eventually got a meeting and um, 
they were totally perplexed as to what I was doing there, that they didn't see they had any responsibility for children and that they were into roads and planning and sewerage and housing and all of that. And so I held my ground and, you know, said that um, everybody lives in your areas. The comfort that they experience in your areas is largely dictated by how responsibly you work. And But I could see by the puzzlement in their faces. So on the way out, the secretary to the group sort of apologized to me for the way I was treated. I said, no, I said, that's fine. I wouldn't expect them to react in any other way. Nobody ever has spoken to them about children before. So I'm the first mm -hmm. And it was because of that meeting that sometime later, uh, years later, Joe Horn, who was then the, the county manager in South Dublin, I think one of the projects that had been done was it showed that in one part of Tala that the children had a lot of, um, a lot of asthma and chest uh, infections and complaints. And uh, the early medical doctors had done some research and the end result was it was the dampness in the houses. That That's was right, yeah. Remember that? That was that was part yeah. of what led to CDI being That's right. That's in right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the report landed on Joe Horn's desk, and he told me afterwards he was about to pick it up and put it up on the shelf with all the other reports. And then he remembered me having gone to talk to to them and me pointing out that actually there were some problems only they could. could. So he looked at the report and then he 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 studied it and he said, well. Nobody can solve the housing problem except me. So he lobbied the Department of the Environment and got five million and remedied the dampness in the houses and cured the health problems. Yeah. And that was the beginning of, of my long relationship with Joe Horn. Yeah. We have mainstream departments and mainstream services, and they get the bulk of the money and the bulk of the resources. And my main aim was to try and have them as effective as possible. Because I, I really had me in my bonnet about expecting small pilot projects or expecting CDI to deliver what a big, big service couldn't deliver. And so part of, of the challenge I felt we had was to try and experiment with what actually did help people on the ground. And if we could prove that this is what helps and this is what makes a difference, if we could then get the mainstream to departments and services taking it on board because then they would be doing what we knew from the people on the ground was effective and obviously a lot of that thinking and and work kind of coincided with atlantic philanthropies investment in the sector didn't it so how much of the focus on evidence was kind of coming from you and wanting to know what makes a difference and and how much of it was was from philanthropy I, I would think that I always sort of have a belief that I used to often say it sometimes, you know, that uh, a lot of us made our living out of poverty. And the only the only distance between most of us and poverty was a job. And I always believed that employment was um, the salvation of, of us all, that once you could earn your living. I, I always believed in that. And then... I always believed in um, education. And again, the reason most of us had our jobs because we managed to get access to education. And had we been deprived of that, we wouldn't be in the jobs that we're in. And thirdly, I also believe that our lives are a matter of chance and luck. And it depends on what socioeconomic status you were born into as to what your life opportunities were. And so therefore, I was sort of naturally tuned in to, 
to those sort of basic beliefs about life. I also find that if you have been a service deliverer, you know how difficult it is to deliver services. You know how difficult it is to get services right. You know how difficult it is to get services to the right people. Um, so that informed me then as a policymaker. And I was always starting policy. I said, well, how is this going to be implemented? Okay, right. Follow it through and then find yeah. out if it actually work because, you know, in policymaking, you have um, these unintended consequences. Do something for a specific purpose. And then it turns out it didn't work like that at all. Um, what mechanisms would you have used, Silda, to find out whether the policy was working or whether there were unintended consequences? How would you have gone about checking that? Well, at the time, um, we set up a research unit in the Office of Men's for Children, and uh, we set up mechanisms for collecting data. Uh, we developed the National Longitudinal Study for Children. We developed a set of indicators for well-being. We set up consultation mechanisms uh, with children. And well, really innovative stuff, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we sort of made it our, our business to try and find out. And then, say, when we started the childcare program, you know, is it working? Is it not working? And I remember in trying to start the childcare program, a lot of the childcare experts um, at the time, we all would have loved childcare like they had in Sweden and all those countries. And that would have been my vision. We'll get there. I thought it would take 30 years, but now it's going to take 40 or 50 years. And at the time, a lot of the experts, they didn't want our strategy to have childminders included that we should be getting rid. So I just go around asking everybody, who's minding your children? And who's minding your children? Who's minding your children? And nine times out of 10, it was a childminder. So I used to have these visions of, so the experts want me to exclude childminders. So that would mean that 90% of the parents will have no childcare. That would be great. They'll all be out protesting. You're listening to Perspectives on Prevention. To subscribe to our podcast, go to Nearcast, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Silda, some of those early childcare schemes, when there was first a focus on putting money into childcare, I think it's fair to say that, that some of those were very much led by getting women into the workforce or back into training and employment. So I'm thinking about the new opportunities for women. And there were a couple of other ones that were very much about getting women working as opposed to what's right for the child. How did you manage that sort of dilemma? Because presumably your focus was on doing something that's good for the child, but the funding was a, had a different emphasis. Okay. okay, this is really important that you, you understand this. I was trained in child development. I had been a social worker. I was a mother of four. In my opinion, I was in justice at the time. I had the equality brief. And in my opinion, the Department of Health should have been developing childcare services because they had the childcare brief at the time. I got the job. I had been down in social welfare where I had responsibility for uh, supplementary welfare allowance and the community and voluntary sector. And then I got the assistant secretary in inequality. And I could see that child, Ireland needed childcare. And uh, was anybody going to end about it? So I remember asking health, no, no, nothing to do with them. They said nothing to do with anybody. No, but the only childcare was there at the time was the Irish Preschool Playgroup Association. 
who were doing the preschools and uh, the some you know some voluntary organisations were were trying to do stuff and they are private one but there wasn't anything there were the the, the childcare regulations of oh, way back I don't know when so nobody was going to do it so then I found myself in charge so I couldn't get the money nobody you wouldn't get money from the exchequer nobody wanted childcare we did Ireland didn't need childcare that was the cry and at the time. Um, I was on the equality brief and because of my responsibility for that, I understood the law for equality and I had dealings with Europe. And I was only a short time in the job when I discovered that uh, the Department of Education and FOSS at the time were both getting some money under the National Development Plan for Childcare. Because I started going to these meetings in my new brief, uh, but they weren't, they were supposed to be doing something about childcare, but the, the EU people used to be over for the monitoring meetings. And then what used to happen was the money that wasn't spent at the end of the year. So the money there, they'd ask for permission from the EU to transfer that into other programmes. I then asked at one of those meetings in my new job, could I make a presentation on childcare? And I did. And how Ireland needed childcare and all of this. So then my next fear was I could see then that the EU people were going to approach me and offer to take the money off false and education and give it to me. And I just went to them and said, please don't do that. I'll be finished. Nobody will ever talk to me again. Yeah, yeah. No, I said, give me some money to begin to do childcare. And I remember Lisa Pavan Wolf was the EU person. And so the social fund was all spoken for. There wasn't any money to give me. And I said, can you not give me something? Just get me the foot in the door. So I remember this guy's name, uh, a young Dutch guy, was Eddie Hartog, I'll never forget him. He was in charge of the structural funds. So he gave me 5 million from the roads in Ireland. He took 5 million off the roads and gave it to me, which meant it could only be spent on capital, on structure. And I had to spend it by the end of the year. I think I had about six months to spend it. And but where I was coming from was to get into the next round of structural funds and get funding using the excuse of the workforce, because you could only get money from uh, the EU funds for employment and training. So I hijacked the I, my interest was in childcare and child development. My equality was also interested in women. And if I could marry those two by getting the money to develop childcare, so that families and children had childcare. I also had to deliver employment for women. And because, so anyway, we got the five million and I, I couldn't, so I called in the five national voluntaries at the time. And I said, you were always stuck for money. We're going to, we're going to have to know that that was my, sorry, that was my second bit of money I got. The first one was the structural one. So I went over to Tony Crooks in ADM and said, Tony, you're going to have to help me. ADM being now Pobble. No, Pobble. I said, yeah. you're going to have to help me. I have to spend this five minutes. So we went, put out an ad, and we had so many applications uh, for, it was structured, so it was to improve whatever childcare was there or to build. And remember, we had three bundles when they were assessed. One was category A, that you priority them for funding. Category B was the same as category A, but you hadn't enough of the five million to give them. And category C was you wouldn't give them money if you had all the money in the world because they weren't up to standard. So that's how we started. Um, and then shortly after that, Lisa Pavan had a small amount of money on the social side. And um, I called in the National Boundaries and I said, this has to be spent, I think by June it was. 
you, you're all in need of money. Uh, you're all into training. So you need to put proposals into us. And the one criteria I have is that you have to cooperate together. There has to be no competition and no fighting amongst each other. And this has to be done as a collaborative. So I had my foot in the door. And then for the next round of structural funds, we had a proposal in for childcare under the equality brief. So I had to use the language of women and the workforce in order to get money for child. So I got 250 million over seven years. Wow. So what I had to cope with when I was at work, I was always getting accused of not having interest in children and women. I was only interested in driving people out to work and it couldn't be further from the truth. What I did was I assessed how you would get money for childcare and children. And I said, if we can get childcare started and begin to build it up, everything happens incrementally. The only thing that happened with the big bang was free secondary education in Ireland where Donna O'Malley announced it and that was it. Everything else is incremental. The only way to tackle poverty is to give children a good start in life and let, let them all start together and let them all get the same thing. Just give them a head, give, give them a start. Um, so that's the answer to me only being interested in women working and getting them out to work. It's not true. How did you manage when people were pushing back at you? It depends what, what the pushback was about and it depended what was going on. I mean, you don't fight battles that you're going to lose because you waste a lot of energy. So you have to gauge what are the, what are the chances of, of winning this. But it seems like one of the sort of skills you have, one of your characteristics, Silda, is about being, you know, standing your ground and being courageous when, when you need to be, but also knowing when is the right time to back down or let go. Yeah, I back down several times and I would back down if you're not going if it's not going anywhere you, you have to make a judgment call and I always took the long view as long as you have your homework done and you have your data and I also believe, always believed in getting it into documents have all your stuff in documents because someday there'll be a civil servant there and they'll be absolutely stuck for, for something and I might pull down that that document and say oh look at this Sildra, I want to ask you about the sort of interdepartmental work. And so you spoke earlier about kind of, in a way, the, the Office of the Minister for Children not belonging anywhere and that there was actually, you know, freedom in that, that you could kind of link in wherever, wherever you needed. And I suppose what we have had in more recent years are interdepartmental policies. So obviously, Better Outcomes, Brighter Futures being the, the main one, which, you know, is interdepartmental, cross-government. Everybody has a stake in it. Everybody is accountable for elements of it. But I think for most of us from the outside looking in, it feels like that there is a very... It's hard work to bring all of the government departments along the journey of delivering on a joined up approach for children and young people. I'm wondering what was your experience of that interdepartmental work and, and, and what do you think makes it work well and what gets in the way of it? Interdepartmental work is really hard work. I would have encountered it as well on the, on the disability. We did the disability bill and the development of the National Development Authority and the, um, the mainstreaming, trying to mainstream services with disability. And the challenge 
you know, we were given responsibility for it uh, under the equality brief at the time in, in justice. And the, what you're, the challenge that you have is that nobody has enough money to do things. Uh, no department has enough funding for everything they have to do. They also have their priorities. So what their minister or what's in the programme for government has to be done. So we had a lot of difficult meetings. What, what we set out at the time, what people with disabilities were looking for was, was rights and, and it's sort of the compromise the government was giving was um, improved services. So we had the interdepartmental group and they all owned a part, a part of it. So when you, when you started off, you see, when you're in social policy and you know services, you have an understanding that they don't have and you have knowledge that they don't have. Mm-hmm. So if you take the Department of Transport at the time, they're thinking of, of roads and trains and buses and they haven't enough money to do what needs to be done on their side. Whereas what we were trying to do was to make transport accessible for people with disabilities. And so you'd usually have principal officers coming to those meetings and I would be chairing it as an assistant secretary at the time. So you're asking each department to do what they can do in relation to access. And so for them, it's, it's another burden and it's where if they have to do stuff, where they're going to find the money and what are they going to reprioritize. And it's adding a whole burden to their life again. And I remember um, we had quite a, a difficult meeting one day. And after the meeting, I discovered in transport that I think it was half a dozen new buses had been ordered from Holland. And I discovered they weren't going to be accessible. And I remember almost crying. So I picked up the phone and I rang the assistant secretary down there. And I said, you know, we work for the same government. We work for the people of Ireland. Now I said, what's the point? I said, I'm working under government instructions to try and improve access. What's the point in having me up here? If down there you're buying six buses, new buses that won't be uh, delivered, but they won't be accessible. And I said, you know, you have the same obligations as I have. Fortunately for me, this guy was a decent guy and a nice guy. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't at the meetings. The principal officer was at the meetings and... So at the end of the conversation, he said, Sylvia, you know you're dead right. The reason we do it, we're only thinking we'll get six buses for the amount of money that we have. If we do what you, you want us to, we probably only get three because they're, they're, uh, they have to be accessible. But he said, I'll do it. And you gradually chip away. Mm-hmm. Somebody in the system has to be interested enough in improvements in order to chase up things and to dialogue and to say, we're all in this together. If you're not interested enough in doing that, and if you're not interested enough, if you just see it as a day job. So I always felt that I was paid, I was paid to do a job and I was paid handsomely for it. And if I didn't do it, it was under false pretenses. And I believe that every public servant is is paid to do a job. And And I mean, it sounds like really it, it it's so much of the work we do at local level it's about relationship building and communication and you know um you know keep on knocking at the door and not um, giving up you know when you get knocked that you don't despair you just say oh i'll come back to it another day yeah yeah i'll park it, I'll park it and i'll come back mm. um, so do i have one last area i want to just ask you 
briefly about in your biography in in this book achieving impact in public service there's a there's a, a recurring thread about, around community development and i'm wondering was that sort of part of did that stay with you through your work is community do you see community development as a, a critical aspect of working with children and families or what are your views on on that now um, my when I did my training in social work back in the 60s we we did a module on community development and I did a placement in Sheffield at the time on community development and then when I you, later on when initially when I trained as a social worker you you did the basic social science degree you didn't have to do the qualification um, and later on I did the qualification course at the London School of Economics and again I opted for the community development module as well as the, the child welfare and I did a community development um, placement in Hackney Social Services where there was a very good community development unit and the reason I was interested in community development is oh, I did I also did a placement in Cork I'm in credit unions where in long start I'll tell you how old I am um, I did a placement in a credit union where part of the work was working with people who had uh, got into debt and you know following up on, on on working with families like that and so I think it goes back to an analysis of people people have uh, people have um, have strengths within themselves and people have opportunities and you just they just get so drunk, uh, downtrodden and uh, so I actually believe in the power of people and I also believe that public servants are employed by the people. So when you marry those two together, you, you sort of get the approach that, that, I, that I took. Atlantic Philanthropies had been working mainly with education. I mean, Atlantic Philanthropies are responsible for DCU, Limerick University, all the ITs. They poured money into it. And to the delight of education in those days, they did it secretly. You know, they they didn't want to know that it was mm. Chuck doing it, and then they decided to that they wanted to uh, invest in in children. And I at that time I was down in Hawkins House just starting the Osmond Children, and um, there were Tom Costello was the Atlantic philanthropist person, and they were flying all these experts from around the world into Ireland, and there'd be a seminar in Trinity, and there'd be something else, and I was too busy trying to do the J job to attend them. And so what happened was Tom Costello used arrange that they'd call into me at half eight in the morning on the way down and they'd take me through it. Um, so I found I was learning a lot about the new theories. You have to keep up to date as well. Yeah. And you're always too busy in a day job as a civil servant um, to be reading too much. Or if you do read, you'll only need to read the summary. Um, so I was getting educated in all, all this thinking. And so I gradually... Uh, soaked it in and then when some money became available I was I was ready to to get involved and this stuff wasn't easy because some of the views in the civil service at the time was Atlantic philanthropies was trying to wag the tail of the government and it was none of their business to be uh, influencing social policy and um, some people thought like that others saw it as an opportunity uh, which I did and I said okay but I was against this business of doing pilot projects forever uh, because, you know, if there's something to be learned, it should be learned and go into the mainstream. And the mainstream has all the resources and they should take on board the lessons and change how they work. Whether 
that is pie in the sky or not. I don't know. You're out there. I have no idea. I think that's still a work in progress, Zelda. Yeah. It's life's work um, yeah. because, you know, um, systems and structures and human beings don't change that much. Mm-hmm. So you probably have to keep repeating the same challenges all the time. Yeah. And Silda, when you think about all the things you've done from your social work days and, and working in really, you know, difficult circumstances right through to, you know, leading, establishing a, a new government department, what's your proudest moment? What's your what's your real legacy, do you think? I think it's 50-50, if I can say between two things. Sure, yeah. Allow me that the ECHE program, and again, that, that's that's based on international research. And the other one was youth justice, where I carried out a review of youth justice and changed changed uh, the detention system. And the reason for that is I consider that the children who end up in detention are the most deprived and unlucky of all our children. And I wanted, I always felt that those services should be influenced by children's policy. And uh, when Brian Lennon was there at the time, between us, we managed to do that. And because before that, the age of criminal responsibility was seven. Yeah, crazy. The 16 and 17 year olds went into St. Patrick's prison uh, the, the detention schools were under education who didn't want them. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody really owned them or cared about them or bothered too much about them. Tucson HAC and the detention, they're all the same children. They just move in and out. And I wanted the services to follow them around instead of the children having to um, fall between all the services. And I thought, I don't even know what happened to the acts or how it's going. The proof to me that our policy is working is that my, one of my biggest problems when I was at work was the courts where the judges had no place to send the children. The detention centres were always full. There was murder. Now they only have 20-something, which is success. And the problem is they need to be, you know, you can have a burst. You need, they could double overnight again. So you have to be ready to take mm. them when they come. Um, so it's quite um, a difficult service to manage. And, um, but if you talk about children, if we can't do the best we can for those who've lost most, well, then we're not up to much. Hilda, thank you so much. I could listen to your stories all day. It's fantastic. And, uh, and it's particularly lovely to hear you talking about Joe Horan, who yes. uh, obviously was our chair here and... Um, so that's really lovely to, to be thinking about him as well. Um, so oh, Joe, Joe was on the board of Oberstown. Yes, yes. And it was uh, because of Joe as well. If Joe hadn't been there, Oberstown would not have um, evolved the way it did. So yeah. well, he used to refer to bringing you over to the board meetings in Oberstown as driving Miss Daisy. That's right, yes. <laughs> We used to do all our plotting on the way out. <laughs> I bet you did. That's where the expose will come from, <laughs> those car journeys. Yes, yes, um, yes, yeah, so yeah. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for joining me on, on the podcast. It's been wonderful to talk to, to you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Perspectives on Prevention, the podcast series created by the Prevention and Early Intervention Network. We hope these conversations inspire, affirm and excite you. To find out more, check out our website at www.peein.ie.
To listen to all episodes of Perspectives on Prevention, be sure to subscribe to our podcast at Nearcast, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.